what I want to do then is I want to take a look at this passage of Scripture, verses 9 through 11, uh, under three points. And the points, are, the points of my outline are, are as follows. Number one, we're going to see in verses 9 through 11 that the Lord Jesus Christ deliberately comes to be baptized. He comes with deliberation. And this deliberation with which he comes to be baptized is a deliberation that has all kind of understandings in his mind as he comes to be baptized. He's not just meandering along the way and finding himself at the River Jordan and saying, oh, I think I'll be baptized. No, that's not what's happening. He's coming with purpose. He's coming with design. And we'll take a look at that. So Jesus deliberately comes to be baptized. The second thing we're going to see is that the Spirit descends upon him to anoint him. So the Lord comes with deliberation. The Spirit descends. And the third thing we're going to see is that the Father declares his love and approval for his Son. So the Lord Jesus Christ deliberately coming, the Spirit descending, and then the Father declaring. Let's take a look at each of these points. Number one, I want you to notice with me uh, verse uh, 9 of Mark chapter 1. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. A couple preliminaries that I just want to draw your attention to. Number one. Uh, uh, Nazareth. This is uh, Nazareth uh, in the in the scriptures. It was a very obscure place. It really was not even mentioned in the Old Testament. You would never read of it in the Old Testament. Uh, many of the uh, uh, right Jewish writers uh, that were not writing this, uh, the scripture, but were you know writing that were uh, uh, that were contemporaneous with the Old Testament, never mentioned uh, Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth, it's so obscure that it has to be uh, identified with its association with Galilee. So there was this obscure place, Nazareth, that Jesus was from. And he comes to the River Jordan specifically to be baptized. And what I want you to see is this. When we talk about this, or excuse me, when, when Luke, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, when uh, Mark brings this to our attention, what I want you to see and what I want you to be aware of, as I said before, he comes with deliberation. He comes in order to be baptized. Now, when he comes to be baptized, you have to understand that he's coming with an awareness of his messianic calling and his messianic mission. You know, it's kind of interesting that this is a very uh, a significant question that comes up in the study of the life of Jesus Christ. And one of the questions is essentially this. At what point did Jesus understand his messianic mi mission? At what point did he fully understand that he was the Son of God sent into the world? And what's interesting is that when we look in the scripture, I would say two things. Number one, what we don't see in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ is any kind of a, a thinking through what this might be. We never see Jesus asking himself the question, am I truly the Son of God? We never see that. But we see the assertion of that. And we see the assertion of that at a very young age, or at least at a relatively young age. In Luke chapter 2, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple. You remember the, the account. Uh, there he was with his uh, family uh, going to the, uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. And somehow, almost unexplainingly, uh, they lose sight of where he was at. And when they come back to Jerusalem to, to seek him out, what does he say? He says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Stop and think of this. Here is this young boy at 12 years old identifying two things. Number one, that God was his father. I want you to understand how significant that was for a young boy to say this. He didn't say, as maybe a pious young Jew may have been able to say at that time, I must be about the father's business. But he says, I must be about my father's business. You see, you see I think at this time, our Lord Jesus Christ is aware of who he is. Now, to be sure, there would be development in his thinking. To be sure, we, we learn later on in Luke chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ grew in knowledge and in stature and in wisdom. And so there may have been a development in this. 
But I think when our Lord Jesus Christ, at this very young age, he understands who and what he is. I also think our Lord Jesus Christ has a very good grasp of all the scriptures. This goes without saying, does it not? The Lord Jesus Christ, again, fed on the word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ lived by the word of God. And I'm sure, and I know for a fact, that he would have understood everything by way of those Old Testament prophecies. Maybe looking back in in Malachi chapter 3 and and understanding that there was this one who was a forerunner and he saw in his cousin John the very fulfillment of that prophecy. He knew that there were passages of Scripture that would speak about the Spirit of God anointing the Messiah and he understood that these things were true of him. And so when he comes to the river Jordan, he's not just ending up there by mistake. He's not carried away with a big crowd that's uh, that's going there. Excuse me. He comes with the liberation. And the, and the deliberation that he comes with is to formally be engaged in the work that the Father sent him to do. And so this Lord Jesus Christ, he comes. He comes with the liberation. And aren't you glad that this is how the Lord Jesus Christ begins his work? He came from glory to this world in order to do a specific work. And what was that work? That work was to save sinners. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He takes up this work willingly. He takes up this work again with all of his energy. And now he comes to the beginning of that work. You see, previous to this, he was what we might call a private individual. He's a private person. But now, upon his baptism, he will now be inaugurated into that work of redemption that his father sent him into the world to do. And so again, here is the Lord Jesus Christ, very much aware of his messianic calling, very much aware of who he was by way of his essential nature. And so, as I said before, there, there are other, uh, as I said before, he comes with the liberation. There's another passage of scripture, two more passages of scripture that I want you to be aware of along these lines. I think our Lord Jesus Christ, as he read time and time again a passage like uh, Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 40, uh, verse 8, I think he knew that that passage primarily referred to him. What does Psalm, what does Psalm 40, verse 8 read? Again, Psalm eighty, verse uh, Psalm forty, verse eight. I delight to do Thy will, O my God. Yea, Thy law is within my heart. There was a great delight in the heart of Jesus Christ to be obedient to the Father. I also think that He understood that many of the Old Testament passages that spoke about the the, the preaching of Messiah all revolved on Him. So that in Luke chapter 4 we read this. Again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance of the captive, and the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So I want you to see and understand, our Lord Jesus Christ came with the liberation to be baptized. Because he understood by way of prophetic teaching, he understood by way of his own internal awareness that this was now the time to begin the work of redemption. And so our Lord Jesus Christ comes with the liberation. Well, that's our Lord coming to his baptism. One of the questions that often comes up when our Lord is baptized is, is why was he baptized? We understand that he comes with the liberation, but the question is often asked, why was the Lord Jesus Christ baptized? And it's interesting the, the, the amount of answers that are given. I think one commentator said that there may be as many as 12 or 13 answers that commentators throughout the years have, been, have given as to why Jesus was baptized. 
But I think in one sense, uh, the, the best answer is the, the most succinct answer. And it's the answer that's found uh, in Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew has the account of the, of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to be baptized, he comes with the liberation. But you remember that John the Baptist is, is uncertain about what's going on here. John the Baptist, even though he was his cousin, and even though he had probably never met Jesus prior to this point, John the Baptist is somewhat taken aback that this one, Jesus, this Son of God, this one who was again the Messiah, would come to be baptized of John. And John is somewhat surprised. As I said before, Jesus is not surprised. He understands what he's doing. John is surprised. And so what does the Lord Jesus Christ say to John? He says this. He says, look, suffer it now to fulfill all righteousness. So why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized literally to fulfill all righteousness. Now this tells us something important about the baptism of John. And what it tells us about the baptism of John is essentially this. That the baptism of John was a baptism that was ordained by God and was required of all those who would be obedient to God in the days of John the Baptist. So that John's baptism wasn't like this optional thing that was out there. John's baptism was a baptism that if you or I were living in that day, we would be under the command of God to follow that baptism. Why do I say that? You remember, I think I believe it's in Luke chapter 20, the Lord Jesus Christ is being challenged as to the authority of his teaching. And the, 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 the religious leader says, you know, on what authority do you do these things? And our Lord says, I'll answer you if you answer me this question. The baptism of John. Was it of men or was it from heaven? And what our Lord is saying is this. He is identifying the baptism that John gave as that which had the authority of heaven. It was that which was ordained of God. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ comes for, to John to be baptized, and he, he's asking the question, or he's saying with surprise, I should be baptized of you, what does our Lord say? Suffer now to fulfill all righteousness. So our Lord is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. You see, this is, the, this is the default position of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the Father wills, that's what he does. Whatever, whatever the Father commands, that's what he does. And he does this, you remember, in order that he might fulfill righteousness, not only as he stands before God, but in order that he might fulfill righteousness for you and for me. Jesus Christ, again, comes to fulfill righteousness. But secondly, what he does in his baptism is this, is he identifies with the people of God. In his baptism, he is not coming to be baptized as a sinner, but in his baptism, he is identifying with sinners, and he is setting the stage for the whole work of substitution that the gospel is all about. The gospel is the great act of, of a substitute dying for you. The gospel is the great act of a substitute fulfilling righteousness in your place before a holy God. And so Jesus Christ comes for two primary reasons to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, number one, and number two, in order to be identified with sinners. And so these are the things <coughs> that we see here <coughs> excuse me, in this passage of Scripture. And this idea of being identified with sinners is, is, no small is, is no small issue. You must understand, as I said before, this is really what the gospel is all about. Isn't this what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18? For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. You see Jesus identifying with his people. And what about Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12? We read this, Therefore, why divide him a portion with the great? 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. Listen, and he was numbered with, with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now again, oftentimes when we read this passage of Scripture, we think he was numbered with the transgressors at his crucifixion, and he was. But I want you to see and understand that in his baptism, he is being numbered with the transgressors. He's being identified with them. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ in his baptism coming forth in order to fulfill our righteousness, number one, and number two, in order to be identified with sinners. And so that's the first point we have, our Lord Jesus Christ coming with the liberation to the waters of baptism in order to fulfill our righteousness and in order to identify with sinners. Well, this brings us to the second point of our sermon. And look at verse 10. In verse 10, we read the following. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. He saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now you have to understand that this is highly, highly significant. This is the great act of the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in the Old Testament, we read over and over again how prophets were anointed how that the kings were anointed, how that priests were anointed, and that anointing signified, again, their being equipped for a task. Well, you have to understand that when the Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God descends upon him, this is the truest anointing that we ever read of on the pages of Scripture. Here was the Lord Jesus Christ being truly anointed by the Spirit. And it's interesting that in the Greek text what we see is that the Spirit does not merely reside, uh, come upon him, the Spirit enters into him. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ as the truly Spirit-filled man. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ as one who has the Spirit like no other had the Spirit. Here he is as Messiah equipped for the task in front of him. And this is a wonderful thing. Because what we see here, we read the passage of Scripture we read this morning, or Rick read from Isaiah 64. What's very interesting is that at this time, uh, the, the Jewish teachers uh, believed that God had ceased to speak directly to his people. That now God was only speaking by way of an echo, so to speak. That God was not speaking directly face to face. It was not the day of the prophets, we might say. But now, in this passage of Scripture, when our Lord Jesus Christ is coming up out of the water, and when the heavens are opened, literally, when the heavens are rended, when they're torn, it's the same word that Mark will use later in the Gospel when he speaks about the veil in the temple, how that it was torn from top to bottom. When this passage of Scripture is quoted, it is echoing, it is looking back to that great passage in Isaiah 64. There was Isaiah longing for a day when God would act. And did you hear the, the, the how can we say, what's the word that I'm looking for? Do you hear the pathos? Do you hear the, 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 the emphasis there? Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would pour out upon your people a blessing. Oh, that you would deliver them from their enemies. Well, now, when our Lord Jesus Christ is coming up out of the water, guess what's happening? God is rending the heavens. And God is coming down to visit his people with salvation. What a significant act this is. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ again, ordained and anointed for this ministry. This ministry whereby the Spirit of God is now among the people of God, specifically in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ is, no, is, no, is not just one step along the way. It is the formal anointing of Messiah for the task ahead of him. 
Do you see and do you understand that the one that you are trusting in this morning, are you trusting in, in Him this morning? Is Jesus your Savior? You see. You see, I can't assume these things, can I? I must press upon you the claims of the gospel. I must, I must press upon you the responsibility to believe. You see, this one whom I hope you are believing, this one is anointed of God. This one has the stamp of heaven upon him. This one is the one who is beloved by the Father. And so again, he is equipped for the task. Oh, you see, aren't you glad that God doesn't send you back to yourself to do the best you can, and then maybe on the day of judgment we'll weigh it all out. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. He doesn't save the righteous. He saves sinners. And all those who want to be righteous in themselves, well, good luck with that. You're not going to make out well on the day of judgment. But all those who understand themselves to be sinners, oh, there's a Savior who is anointed of God to do the task. He's sufficient to the task, my friends. And so there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is open. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. Oh, the heavens were torn open that day. The Spirit of God descended. Oh, how we thank God for that great act. Well, you see, this work, this work of the Spirit of God descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, is greatly significant, not only for the points that I, reasons that I just said, but it's greatly significant in identifying Jesus as the Messiah marked out by God. You see, look in, in John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 that we read again, Rick read this morning. You may not have noticed this, but notice what John says here. And again, it's interesting because many of us know that, that John and the Lord Jesus Christ were cousins. Um, many believe they probably didn't know each other face to face. They wouldn't, if they would have passed each other, they may not have known each other. But there was something that was going on at that time in the baptism when our Lord deliberately came uh, to the Jordan where John understood now what was going on. He understood who was in front of him. But what really sealed the deal, if I can say it that way, for, for John was this anointing of the Holy Spirit. Stop and think now again of the words that you heard earlier this morning. John 1, verses 32 and 33. And John bare record, saying... You see, this is another thing. Every, you know, the Gospels begin with the ministry of John. John is the prophesied forerunner. As kings in the earthly realm would have forerunners go before them, so the king, the Messiah, had a forerunner to go before him, who was John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist say? John the Baptist's testimony to you is the following. And John, bear record. We can say it this way. Since the word of God is always speaking, God, uh, John bears record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. Now listen, this is what he says in verse 33. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water. That's why John's baptism was a, was a divine ordination. That's why John's baptism was a divine command. That's why if you and I were living in the days of John the Baptist, it would be, it would be incumbent upon us to be baptized by John because it was of divine ordination. He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. In other words, how will you know Messiah when you see the Spirit of God coming upon him and remaining upon him? That is the one that's the Messiah. You see the Lord Jesus Christ then. He's marked out by heaven itself. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, has all the testimony of the prophets. John was the, great, was the greatest prophet of Old Testament times. And so all this, again, is pointing to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, uh, again, this idea of our, of our Lord being, uh, being filled with the Spirit of God. John 3, verse 34. For he whom God hath sent speaks the word of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Jesus was the true Spirit-anointed and Spirit-filled man in order to do the task that God had called him to do. So here we have, again, as kings in the Old Testament were, were anointed, as priests were anointed, as prophets were anointed, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ being able to say once again in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach. How we thank God for that anointing. Well, there's another thing I want you to see about this uh, descending of the Holy Spirit upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing I want you to see, and this is again taken from another parallel account. We, we look briefly just at Matthew's account here. Uh, again, uh, you know, granted to, for, to fulfill our righteousness. Uh, but in Luke's account, uh, we see kind of a little interesting um, uh, uh, insight that, 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 we would, uh, that we would be remiss if we didn't give attention to it. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we read the following. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized. And as I said before, please understand, Jesus didn't just meander to the, to the river. He goes with the liberation. <clears throat> he knows that John is the forerunner. He knows that the, the prophecies of the Old Testament will say that he will be anointed by the Spirit. He knows all these things. But listen to what we have here, John th uh, Luke 3, 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, listen to this, and praying, the heaven was opened. Well, my friends, that's significant. That's significant. You know, these, these, the, these times that we see our Lord Jesus Christ in prayer, these are like gems to us, aren't they? These are precious, precious things. Not because our Lord wasn't a praying man. He was praying all the time. But all oh, the kind of glimpse to have into the inner spiritual life of Jesus Christ. Oh, these are very, very precious. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ undergoing the ordinance of baptism to fulfill all righteousness. And he's praying. Can I say it this way? Can I set this in something of a church setting? That Jesus came to the ordinance in prayer? In a few weeks, we will have the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Will you come to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in prayer? And Jesus came praying. And as he was praying, then the heavens were open. I think there's something that we should see in this. I think we should see a pattern of how the Spirit works. That the Spirit is given oftentimes in, regard, in, 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 in answer to prayer. We have the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. How much more shall your Father give the Spirit to those who ask of Him? And so I think there is something of a pattern. Now, don't get me wrong. We, let's not conflate two things here. But uh, let's understand it properly. Let's understand, number one, that this is just the mark of our Lord Jesus Christ as the anointed of God. He is praying and the Spirit of God is descending. But I think it creates something of a pattern for our own spiritual conduct. That if we desire the blessing of the Spirit of God, can I say it this way? The anointing of the Spirit of God to be upon us. We have to be a praying people. So oftentimes, the, the work of the Spirit and the prayers of the people of God come together. And so this little, this little, this little insight is something that we, again, should not, uh, should not just uh, quickly uh, uh, go by. We should give attention to it. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, again, coming up out of the water, praying, and the Spirit of God descending, anointing our Lord Jesus Christ for the task. There He was now, fully empowered to do the work of God. One more point of kind of application I want to make, not that I'm closing out, but just one more point of application. That little word rend, the heavens were rended. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. 
God is looking for rended hearts, is he not? What does the prophet say? Let us not tear or rend our garments, but let us rend our hearts. Oh, you see how God works among those with a broken heart. It is to this one, the scripture says, that God will look. The one who is of a humble and contrite heart. Oh, these hearts of ours, brothers and sisters, how do they stand with God this morning? These hearts of ours, do they betray us? These hearts of ours, by way of what we were thinking about, even right now, are we, are we 100 miles, are we 2 miles, are we 10 miles away from this place in our hearts? Oh, may our hearts be rendered this morning, and may the Spirit of God come down upon us in a, in a great and glorious way. Well, there is then the descent of the Holy Spirit, the deliberation of the Son to go to be baptized, the descent of the Holy Spirit to anoint for power in the baptism, and then we have the declaration of the Father. And this is phenomenal. Because now we have God speaking about the one who he loves to speak about. He loves to speak about his son. Oh, over and over again we see in the scripture how that God the Father speaks about his son. And he speaks about him in the most exalted terms. This is my beloved son. And I think there's something of a parallel there. You remember we looked at Luke chapter 2. And he said, must not, Jesus said, must not I be about my father's business? And when the, and when the father looks at the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, this is my beloved son. You see, there's a parallel there. Jesus is, again, truly the Son of the Father. And the Father is truly the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might remember last week when we took a look at this, uh, at this phrase, the Son of God, how that we said that it's to be understood in a couple of different ways. And it's not always understood in the same way at the same place at the same time. And you remember, sometimes we said that the Son of God can have something by way of a functional uh, definition to it. And what I mean by that is that the, the one who is designated as the Son of God is the one who works for God. So that kings were sometimes called the sons of God. Angels were sometimes called sons of God. And so in that sense, in a functional sense, sometimes that title is used in that regard. And, in and when our Lord Jesus Christ is obedient to the commands of the Father, there is a sense in which he is acting for God on behalf of men. That's the functional aspect of it. But you also remember we said, and this is very, very important, that the word, not, that the phrase not only has a functional aspect given to it, it has what we would call an essential aspect given to it. And so that it is not only Jesus as the Son of God working for God, it is Jesus as the Son of God working as God for men. The heavens rent and God came down to save his people. And so you see this designation now when, when the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My friends, we live in a world of many religious heroes, do we not? Religious heroes of the present and religious heroes of the past. Line them all up and take your choice. Line them all up. Only of one of those do you hear these words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in a world of religious options, who will you stand with? God marks out his son. He marks him out by way of the descent of the spirit. He marks him out by way of declaration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who will you stand before a holy God on that day with? Will you stand in your own righteousness? Will you stand in the, in, in the tradition of, religious, of a religious teacher of days gone, gone by or maybe of a future time? Or will you stand with the one who died for you, who worked not only for God on your behalf, but acted as God on your behalf? Oh, you see this one that the Father delights to speak of. Again, we love to speak of him as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, again. The other thing I want you to see here is this. 
he, he makes reference that he is the, the, the fact that he is my beloved son. This is a very, this is a very touching thing to see. Here is, the, here is the father expressing all these deep affections for his son. True love. You know, sometimes we've, we've spoken in the past about that inner Trinitarian love that existed from eternity. You know, God was never in eternity past looking for somebody to love. God always had an object of his love. It was inner Trinitarian. The Father always loved the Son. The Son always loved the Father. The Spirit was always, again, in that, in that, in that relationship of love. And so what you see here is this perfect and this wonderful example of inner Trinitarian love. My beloved Son. But he loves him not only because there is a likeness of nature between the Father and the Son. He loves him because there is an obedience of purpose. That Jesus comes into the world to do his Father's will. Whatever the Father commands, that's what he takes up to do. And that's why the Father is able to say, in him I am well pleased. Well, you see, I have to ask you this question. God sees in his Son the object of his love. Do you see in the Son of God the object of your love? Do you see in the Son of God the object of your love in such a degree that there are no rivals in your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, nor to the love that He deserves? Is Christ exalted as Lord and King over all? Think of that. Think through that. Think upon that. Allow the Spirit of God to work up within you a great love and affection for this one whom the Father loves. But the Father is well pleased in His Son. And what this means is essentially this. If the father is well pleased in his son, and if the father is well pleased with his son, with what he's done on the cross, are you well pleased with that? Or are you still looking for some other way to be acceptable before a holy God? You know, there's, there's, there, 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 there's much about the religion that could really throw us off at times. Uh, sometimes people take the view, just get rid of religion altogether. Other times people take a very zealous approach to this thing called religion. And what they're going to do is they're going to work their way to heaven and rather get out of their way because they're, get, they're, they're working up. They're going to do everything they need to do within themselves. You see, they're not, they're not necessarily well pleased in the work of Jesus Christ. They might be enamored by it. They may think it commendable. But to rest in it wholly and to rest in it truly and to rest in it finally... You see, there's always something in that soul that has not come to Calvary. There's always something in there to say, what do I have to do with these hands? How can I be acceptable before God? Why well, I'm saying to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, answers that question. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, answers that question by saying this, look to the one in whom the Father delights. Look to the one in whom the Father loves. Look to the one in whom the Father is well pleased. That's why Paul in the book of Ephesians says we are accepted in the beloved we're not accepted in our own good works we are accepted in the beloved my friends are you accepted in the beloved this morning is Jesus Christ yours is he the object of your love is he the desire of your soul you see the father speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ here my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. Well, like I said, the Father loves to speak about His Son. Again, we see this in a number of places. I'll just give you examples from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 3.22, again, the same, the baptism. Uh, this is my beloved Son. In Luke chapter 9, uh, we have the transfiguration. Uh, this is my beloved Son, and uh, uh, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And there he is. That's kind of interesting, the, uh, uh, the, voice of, uh, the voice of the Father at the transfiguration. Because you remember, upon the Mount of Transfiguration, who, who appears with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Moses and Elijah. 
It's the representation of the law and the prophets. And when God sees the law, and when God sees the prophets, and when God sees his son, he says to the church, hear him. Hear Christ. You need no subsequent prophet after Jesus Christ. You need no subsequent moral code after Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus Christ, this is all brought to its height. And so again, the Father preaching about His Son. It's a wonderful thing to consider the Father speaking about His Son. And if I can put it this way, it's a wonderful thing to consider the Father. Can I say it this way? The Father preaching about His Son. I think there's a sense in which that's what the Father is doing. He's proclaiming Jesus Christ. And I have to ask you a question. Do you see how He's doing it here? Look here in verse 11. And there came, a, and there came a, a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, depending on your Bible translation, depending on the way your Bible is formatted, you may see in verse 11 that these verses, or this verse, is uh, part of it is in, 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 uh, in italics, or it is marked off by some marker to let you know what's happening is this is that in verse 11, there are two Old Testament passages that are being brought to the forefront. One is Psalm 2, where where the Messiah, where where Jesus Christ is set off as God's King, Psalm 2. Another is Isaiah 42, where Jesus, as the servant of God, is being set forth. But I want you to notice something here. Here is God the Father proclaiming something about Jesus Christ. And when God the Father speaks about His Son, What vehicle does he use to speak of his son? We know it's whatever it is, it's audible, but that's not where I'm going. The vehicle that the father uses to speak about his son is his own holy word. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we might say it this way, God opened the holy scriptures and preached Christ. Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my beloved son. Isaiah 42, verse 1, My servant in whom I delight. Here is God setting forth Jesus Christ from the Word of God. This is exactly what Jesus did. You remember in Luke chapter 24, He opened up and He he showed them from all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The Father preaches Christ from the Word of God. Jesus preaches Himself from the Word of God. What must every man who stands in a pulpit do? He must preach Christ from the Word of God. And so here we see the Lord Jesus Christ formally inaugurated into His work of being the Savior of sinners. Formally inaugurated into His work of Messiah. Having upon Him the anointing of heaven. Having upon Him the declaration of His Father that He is beloved of the Father and that the Father is well pleased with His work. Well, I ask you then, in closing, I ask you these questions. As I said before, are you well pleased with this one whom the Father has sent forth? Are you encouraged and are you excited about the fact that Jesus Christ has been uniquely anointed by the Spirit of God to accomplish the work of redemption on your behalf? Oh, you see, my brothers and sisters, what a Savior you have. What a Savior who is being offered to you right now. I'm saying to you, love Him. 
Love him with all of your affections. Allow no rivals to be in the heart. Allow Jesus Christ to reign supreme. Let not thoughts creep into your mind that would take away anything from him being exalted as Lord over all. In your trials, come to him. In your worries, come to him. In your difficulties, come to him. You see, he's been anointed for this very purpose. And when you are under the weight of your own sins, come to him because he's been anointed and approved of God to take away those sins. Let us pray.